Hello, folks, and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is your host, Recluse, a.k.a. Stephen Snyder, the longtime creator of the Biza blog and author of a special relationship, Trump Epstein and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visaview.blogspot. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, all one word dot blogspot again all one word dot com and procure a copy of that book and my other works at the farm's official store which is at the farm podcast dot store that is the farm podcast all one word dot store and please consider signing up for the farm's patron and the lowest tier you get at least two additional full-length shows per month that's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive guests and content and the all-access patrons get so much more, including updates on my ongoing investigations, our monthly Zoom parties, periodic State of the Union addresses, and all kinds of other goodies. So yeah, guys, definitely check that out. <clears throat> all right. Today's guest is a newbie making his first appearance on the farm. This is Dr. Inferno, the host of Doom and Tamore podcast, which I have been on at one point here. It discusses crime, parapolitics, apocalypticism, and extremism. So very much down my collective alley and those of you listening. Thank you so much for joining us, Doc. Thank you very much, Recluse. It's an honor to be here. Uh, great to have you on, sir. All right, guys, this show is going to be off the chart. We're returning to one of the most mysterious regions in the country for this outing, namely Southern Ohio. The information Dr. D um, Dr. Inferno has provided me with really struck me hard. I was just in Ohio less than two weeks ago touring at Dean and Hopewell Mounds. I actually went through a lot of the places we're going to be discussing today, likely due to my Randonautica warped Google Maps. Uh, at the time, I was struck by my journey through Ohio's back roads, and even more so now. That's because Dr. Inferno revealed to me that this whole region is awash in human and drug trafficking and may even be linked to the whole Epstein Lakes Western Network and Columbiast boot. And... In the backdrop rooms, some of the most mysterious earthworks left behind by the even more mysterious civilizations that crafted them. Yeah, it's uh, it's going to be a pretty crazy show, guys, chock full of the macabre and the synchronistic in equal measures. So on that note, let us start the show. <laughs> dig in let's set the stage by laying some backdrop about the broader region we're exploring 
I think a good starting point is Route 23, the so-called Hillbilly Highway, sometimes the Dixie Highway. Why don't you tell us a bit about the road's historical legacy in Appalachia? Well, just like you pointed out there, um, Stephen, that the Route 23 has a very significant uh, part of Appalachian history and of Appalachian people. It's kind of what we could say a escape road out of the sort of in imposed hell, I would say, the, the coal companies and a lot of the sort of, I would say, economic oppression that, that was put upon the Appalachian people and the people of the region. So they saw like Highway 23 as kind of a, a conveyor belt, I would say, to prosperity to get out of their predicament into the, and of course, they, they were thrust into the uh, urban wills of Detroit, Chicago, and uh, much of the industrial north. Little did they know that that in itself would be a trap. But that is, um, that's pretty much what the uh, Highway 23 represents to, to most people that are coming in out of, you know, the Appalachian region of Kentucky, West Virginia. And, um, you know, by default, many, I would say many people in Ohio probably trace their roots back to Kentucky and West Virginia as well. Yeah, can you get a bit into the uh, um, the Appalachian disarropa that's kind of come about through Route 23? Well, basically what, what has happened presently is that uh, there's been a lot of back migration, I would say, into Appalachia from, let's say, the urban regions. Um, but let, be- before I go into that, let me just kind of pave the way for why the, you know these, these current events are kind of happening in the region. Well, what happened is that way, I believe, back in the 60s or 70s, the uh, Purdue Pharma companies decided to create a wonder drug out of opiates that they thought would be revolutionized the, uh, you know, the pain, the pain industry and the medical industry. And what they discovered, however, that it had very addictive properties and these addictive properties um, ignited the kind of mu receptors in the brain and also had a very devastating effect upon, I would see the Appalachian region. So one thing leads to another in terms of in terms of like the the opiate crisis, the they get addicted to the, the opiates. The doctors um, kind of zealously, you know, prescribe the opiates because the people in this region are very hardworking people. They are people that uh, you know break, still break their backs. You know, a lot of uh, even like during that time, a lot of the coal industry was still going strong until recently. Uh, so a lot of, and a lot of the doctors, a lot of the people are not the most medically literate people in the region. And it seems that uh, they got hooked on prescription drugs. So this created sort of a criminal element uh, within Appalachia proper itself. This, this criminal element sort of was taken advantage by a lot of doctors who set up various extraneous sort of pill mills across the region the, the pill mills, of course, uh, led to hiring, you know, felons and hiring other people that are criminals. And there was this, this network that was going all the way from, let's say, Kentucky and West Virginia to parts of Florida and highly inflicted the region, I would say, of southern Ohio, which southern Ohio itself is sort of um, a different region than the rest of Ohio. You know, we'll get into that. But that that is it's a different region, a different culture. It's more aligned uh, with the Appalachian people. So if you don't mind, um, recluse, I can even talk about some of the, some of the colorful characters that, uh, were part of 
the the opiate crisis, if you don't mind. Oh, go for it, man. Okay. Well, first of it was a guy named Bryden Proctor. Bryden Proctor was a Canadian that had set up shop in the small town. I wanted to ask you, by the way, is he related to um, the broader, uh, you know, the, the Proctor family that was behind Proctor and Gamble? Because I know they were based out of Cincinnati. I don't believe so. I think he's uh, just a Proctor out of Canada. I think he's just a Proctor out of Canada. I don't think he's related to um, Proctor and Gamble out of Cincinnati. He could be. I don't know. I did not come across that in like looking into his his past. Well, so, I didn't interrupt you there. Go ahead. No, you're good. You're good. So anyway, Doctor Proctor he basically sets up shop in, let's say, South Shore, Kentucky, and this guy is like really flashy and flamboyant. He. Um, he likes driving around fancy sports cars. He likes uh, wearing like fancy suits. This is kind of out of the norm for a place like South Shore, Kentucky in 1996, which is probably like a, a very poor county. It's a very backwards county. It's in a place called Greenup. And, you know, he, he just what he's doing also is that under the table, he's getting a lot of the people that are, let's say, criminal elements. And he's employing them and he's setting them up and he's like setting up this network. So he's actually credited with providing the first ever pill mill. Like this guy is like he he sort of is the you could say the Roy Kroc of, you know, of prescription pills. If there ever was a comparison, he is the first person to ever kind of do this, to take this idea and just revolutionize it and just run with it. Um, eventually in 1998, he sort of like gets a auto accident. What I meant to say, or also he was employed at Portsmouth medical. He is fired. And of course he starts the pill mill hospital there. He, um, okay. So basically he runs, he runs that clinic. Eventually there are people who copy him. There is one doctor by the name of Volkman. Forgive me if I'm mispronouncing the guy's name, but his name is, I think, Paul Volkman. He is a doctor out of Portsmouth. He also took what Dr. Proctor did, and he just expanded it on a whole new level, expanded it. He would have people coming in and out of there at all hours of the day. This sort of uh, rose a lot of alarm. He had surveillance systems right outside of his, his clinic that would just monitor people just 24-7. There was definitely something going on. He had armed guards, too. Actually, standing in his clinic, he had armed guards. And this guy had actually come from Chicago. He um, he was uh, doing... He couldn't make enough money doing the Medicare fraud, let's just say, in inner-city Chicago. Inner-city Chicago, he couldn't get the Medicare fraud. So he decided that uh, Southern Ohio was was fertile ground. For him to spread the gospel, let's could say, of opiates and spread the gospel he did. And that's just a brief overview of some of the people that uh, sort of are influential in spreading the opiates into around this region. Yeah, to return to uh, Highway 23, excuse me, US Route 23 and uh, the Appalachian Disarroba for a second, just to kind of add in some more you know interesting details to this which i think uh you know will uh, provide some more context as we get further into this discussion so obviously when we're talking about people coming out of appalachia i mean primarily these are people um of a scots irish heritage yes and that's important because um 
you know, again, is we're going to kind of, well, you know, to give you guys sort of a big backdrop, I mean, you know, I, I a lot of you listening to this, I know are pretty up on the uh, snuff with the Scots-Irish. Obviously, I've talked about this with Chris Knowles a lot over the years and so forth, but kind of a crash course in this, okay? So a lot of this culture originates from the border areas in Scotland and England, which is in and of itself uh, very interesting since they tend to crop up a lot in border regions in general. Um kind of going into the whole Rob Roy era around the 18th century, the English uh, started to uproot a lot of these clans because they were so problematic. I mean, you know, the, the borders have been a pretty lawless region for centuries. I mean, it was, you know, not uncommon for one of the clans on the English side to go across into Scotland and murder a family, run off with their wives, come back into the other side. And it caused all of these, you know, legal nightmares and just all this <laughs> other stuff. So anyway, um, once the English and Scottish crowds were um, unified in the House of Stuart, the king decided to finally put an end to all of this. And first they uh, started uh, exporting the... Um, borders folk to Ireland in mass and kind of the Ulster area uh, in a bid to try to, um, you know, cause more uh, disorder in Ireland and hopefully um, undermine the Catholics with the Protestant borders folks. Uh, that didn't work too well. They became, you know, as much of a problem in Ireland as they had been uh, in Scotland and uh, England proper. So, Eventually, many of them ended up being shipped off to the Virginia colony and so forth as indentured servants. And then later, um, after they had uh, completed their time with that, many of them were sent off into the wilderness due to various vagrancy laws and all kinds of other mechanisms brought about by the glorious founding fathers who had extreme financial interests in settling Ohio and all of the Northwestern territories and exploited many helpless people in doing so. But again, you can hear all about that in the Society of Cincinnati series. As for the Scots-Irish, they ended up in this whole region in mass, and they brought a lot of their customs with them. Um, you know, I mean, again, kind of the whole clan, you know, family structure, I mean, never really went away. I mean, this is sort of where, like, the tradition of the shotgun wedding, you know, which really was very much a thing, you know, was kind of came from, I mean, it was essentially a reenactment from these old days of the the borders, you know, when you went and, you know, killed the bride's father and took her off and raped her, you know. <laughs> Oh, uh, yes, these glorious customs <laughs> became somewhat more sanitized. Oh, yeah. but they really left the lost the brutality, as we will see. Um, but again, you know, some of these feuds would occasionally crop up. I mean, again, a really infamous version of this would be the Hatfield and McCoy's feud. I mean, that was very much, I think, even though, again, a lot of the stereotypes about the Hatfield and McCoy's being these kind of like redneck, you know, inbred families is nonsense. They were actually quite well educated uh, and fairly prosperous. They have been officers during the Civil War, which was also a factor in the feud. But nonetheless, it was also a bit of a remnant of, you know, how things have historically been settled in Scots-Irish society. So, Getting into the Appalachian Disaropa, you know, you had a lot of people moving out uh, in Route 23 after the Second World War. And you know, like Doc Inferno is kind of alluding to in places like Southern Ohio, where a lot of, um, you know, Scots-Irish ended up working in the factories and so forth. I mean, they definitely brought a lot of their cultural legacies with them. So that's, you know, kind of something to keep in mind as we go into this sort of area here, because it is, you know, fascinating, even though a lot of what we're going to be discussing uh, is unfolding in the Midwest, it's arguably very much rooted in Scots-Irish culture, which is something to keep in mind. And, um, 
you know, kind of, I, you know, to even kind of drive this point home even more, um, there have been several, you know, noteworthy country songs written about Route 23. Yes. People like Steve Earle and uh, Dwight Yoakam. Yoakam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think a fair amount of country singers also uh, grew up like along Route 23, too. So yeah. again, you know, I mean, music has always been a big part of Scots Irish culture. Uh, I mean, the child ballads largely came over through the Scots Irish, and that sort of served as the basis for modern folk and country and even to some extent blues. So, you know, again, that's kind of another thing that continued on with Route 23 and probably arguably to the spread of popularity of country music. Um, you know, I hadn't really, uh, you know, I've only really kind of started to look at this, obviously, but I mean, certainly it kind of seems like country music went from being more of a regional thing uh, in the pre-World War II era to really... Uh, gaining more and more of a mass audience in the aftermath and who knows that you know it's probably partly due to some of this culture being you know exported like well they else. if i might if i may interject here recluse they actually took their culture with them when they when they went to detroit when they went to chicago when they went to the industrial north they kind of lived it's kind of interesting if you map their development they kind of lived i'm going to be quite honest with you a lot like uh urbanite um African-Americans, they were redlined. They were kind of pushed aside. They were not really welcome in, I would say, greater society as much. And uh, there was complaints about them, you know, putting their cars up on blocks, you know, all the stereotypes that you sort of get about, you know, about, you know, about uh, rural white, you know, rural, rural kind of Appalachian uh, people, um, you know, so much so that there were like even like honky tonks and like a lot of the a lot of the you know urban bars as far as way in like is Baltimore. You can see the influence up there even. So I think that kind of added to the flair that you were talking about. Yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, I mean, I definitely would say Maryland too is like another big state where you sell like a lot of this cross pollinization. Um, and the other thing too that I think also sort of bears mentioning as we get into this is again the long you know, frankly, history of criminality and Scots-Irish culture. <laughs> As I, you know, was talking about, this is a culture where, you know, it's still, you know, into like the late 19th, probably early, arguably 20th century, the shotgun wedding still existed to celebrate the old days when you, you know, took the bride off after killing her family to rape her, you know, I mean, like, you know, I'm Scots-Irish, okay, guys, but I'm just being honest with you. I mean, we have a pretty bloodstained culture. It's there. true. I <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm not uh, Scots-Irish completely. I'm, like, German, mostly German and yeah, Welsh. Yeah, I'm partly German, too. <laughs> I'm German and Welsh, and, uh, but yeah, I can, I can attest to that this is still very pertinent. I would call it outlaw culture. Yeah, Out it's definitely, yeah, I mean, more of an outlaw culture, and I mean, again, this... You know, behind, you know, beyond some of the, you know, just kind of cultural quirks, too, I mean, this also really massively um, manifested in Appalachia during Prohibition. Again, you know, bootlegging was a really, really big thing throughout a lot of Appalachia, uh, throughout the whole, you know, I mean, Prohibition era going up through World War II. And also, it's not really talked about a lot, but gambling for that matter, too. <laughs> um, I can't remember if I think it was maybe Covington, Kentucky. It was one of those cities. Newport? In, Newport? Yeah, I think it was Newport, actually. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Newport that was just right across the border from Ohio. And that was essentially 
the Las Vegas before the mob started Las Vegas in the United States. I mean, in fact, I think a lot of the, you know, the card dealers and stuff that they used at the original casinos in Vegas were brought in from Newport, Kentucky. I mean, it was the Chicago or the excuse me, the Cleveland and um, Cincinnati mobs, you know, basically the mobs out of Ohio that ran a lot of these groups and those were the people who also were taken out um you know to run las vegas in the early years mo dallas and those kinds of people but again i mean a lot of the actual casinos were in uh the kentucky side of the border you know right there with ohio so again you know we're going to be talking about kind of this border area a lot between ohio and kentucky and just that whole region you know again kind of going back to the era with bootlegging and also i mean with the mob's intervention there kind of beginning with the late 19th and certainly going into the 20th century up to the second world war and a lot of the gambling establishments and stuff like that there was a very well established legacy of criminality in this region and also ties to organized crime um you know again this is like kind of something for a lot of people who were just sort of hearing about something like the road and massacre or something it was kind of shocking that you know you would have cartels or something you, you, know, you ever heard the you, steven you ever heard of the cut you ever heard of a place called the cut i think so uh bring me up to speed on that okay though. well the, the cut is an area like in the 1960s that they were actually robbing greyhound buses in around eastern kentucky it was that desolated it was that impoverished. They were actually robbing Greyhound buses. This is a real thing. This is a thing that my relatives have told me about. Most people were kind of scared to go up there. If you didn't know anybody up there, you didn't go up there. Yeah, I mean, and then obviously continuing on into the 70s, 80s, I mean, you had the company operating out of, um, you know, Lexington, other parts of Kentucky and so forth, kind of further south. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, there, there's been a lot of, you know, connections to like formal organized crime in this area for a while. I mean, going back, you know, to at least the the early 20th century when like the Cleveland mob and a lot of those kinds of forces started to get in there. So, I mean, it's a lot of people were kind of shocked by the possibility that like Mexican, you know, drug cartels might be operating in there. But that's if you know the history of this region, that's not surprising. There is a very strong criminal element in this whole area from all around southern ohio western west virginia and a good chunk of um, northern kentucky and going into the eastern sphere of it too so again another kind of interesting regional quirk to keep in mind all right so with that Ollie, let's get into more recent times so route 23 it's it's got a bit of a different legacy now so why don't you give us a little bit about the u.s 23 major crime task force so what happened, like I said, leading up to sort of the, you know, legacy of the opiate crisis is that a lot of people, I think, in the inner cities, they got it in their mind that these regions are easy pickings for to make money. So, as you know, opiates are extremely addictive. They act on, you know, your brain receptors and, and uh, your mood receptors in your in your head. And it's it you know, kind of signals a type of impulsive kind of addiction. So once you get the prescription pain pills, you know that like the pain pills are like, they're very expensive. They cost like 40 to $60 in some areas for like Percocets and oxycodone. And by the way, me talking about this doesn't mean I endorse this. I'm just being honest. It's true. This went on for a long time. 
this, these kind of routes were already established with the pill mills, with the doctors, but going into places like Columbus and Ohio. So that some of the drug dealers there decided it was a good idea to follow basically route 23. I don't know who devised this or came up with this. They thought it was a good idea to transport heroin to this region. And they transported heroin to this region. And probably, I don't, probably with the help of a lot of other people along the way, maybe even like the U.S. government, I don't know. But um, they set up shop in these areas and pretty much a lot of these places became a lot like the inner city. Let's just say that. I'll just say that it became like the inner city. And there had, there had to be a type of response to this. And the response to this, I guess, was to tighten up uh, law enforcement, which I'll be honest, in this region, I am no fan of law enforcement in this region. Law enforcement are as dirty as any of like any person on the street. Matter of fact, I would probably trust the criminals in this region a lot more than I would, let's just say, the, the police in this region, because they are just a unofficial gang themselves that are sort of tapped in and are sort of making money off the, off like the um, whoever's like the, whoever's like bringing the the product in. And what I also suspect is I'll also suspect that I don't know if you've read the book Dreamland by Sam Keones, but he talks about this particular type of Mexican cartel called the Alaska. I'm probably mispronouncing. I'm probably butchering that. But the Alaska uh, cartel was kind of a cartel that set up shop in America, I think during the early nineties to the late nineties. And they started distributing heroin. Like it was like pizza. They were doing this home delivery stuff. They were testing out in Los Angeles. So before you know it, like very, and you know, cartels, they kind of function like military, like militias. They set up cells in every different place across the world. And in, and in parts of the United States, I don't know if you're, if you're familiar with the term plug, Stephen, are you familiar with that term? Uh, no, not off the top of my head. Well, if you, if you're like, if you know anything about street politics, which, you know, by circumstance, I know a lot about street politics. The plug is the supplier that brings the, the drugs and then the dealers, they, they funnel it across these various different networks that sometimes they find themselves and sometimes set up shop. And I have no doubt that in places like Portsmouth, in places like Ashland, places like Huntington, there's no doubt in my mind that the local police are on the take. They are going to take money. And the, the uh, Ohio task force, drug task force, is no exception. They're going to take money from whoever is making a lot of, you know, progress in that and, you know, in that kind of sector. Wasn't corruption, didn't it become such an issue with the task, with the uh, US-23 task force that they even had to bring in, like, what, the FBI to take? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah, yes, they did. Um, I'm, I'm, glad you I'm glad you mentioned that. Yes, they, they did have to bring in the FBI. Uh, because like, like they were just like getting probably getting paid off by the dealers. They were getting paid off by local officials. There was a lot of people that was was getting a lot of money from the flow of heroin uh, from the cartels and also from the the various different drug dealers across uh, the different regions of America. So now the the end result is you pretty much have the levels of corruption and the levels of like I would say cultural activity about equivalent, I would say, to many inner cities. 
I know that's a controversial thing to say, but it's the truth. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it would not surprise me. I mean, I'm, uh, you know, here in eastern West Virginia, which wasn't really, um, you know, right in the front lines of the opioid crisis per se. But I mean, it certainly uh, took some pretty serious hits nonetheless. And um, yeah, I mean, just I can attest, I mean, it was pretty bad here a couple of years ago. I mean, it's gotten a little better recently, but um you know, some of the frontline areas like Ohio, I mean, it was, you know, it was just amazing what happened with all of this stuff. Um, I also just been recently been watching the docu-series uh, Joe Berlinger did on a lot of the stuff we're going to be talking about here. It's called Gone, uh, The Missing Women of Ohio, uh, which also gets quite into uh, the opioid crisis and just the devastating effect it's had on Southern Ohio. Um, if I may add, before we move on, Recluse, is that you have to understand the way that the governmental organization is structured in these regions, they almost resemble a Masonic Lodge, in my opinion. They resemble a type of Masonic Lodge because it's about clans, it's about families, and the governmental structure is kind of like who you know. Everyone gives preferential treatment to either their family or their friends. And unfortunately, that doesn't always, your family and your friends are people that you may like, but they're probably not the people that can always, you know, be fair and administer uh, the type of justice or the type of, you know, um, let's say fairness as equally distributing the law. So you get a lot of corruption that way. I think it's kind of internalized in the region. It's, it's almost, an, I mean, some people may argue that that, you know, that's sort of a controversial view in itself, but it almost seems like it's just internalized in the region. And yeah, uh, I think that's another sort of quirk of like the brother like Scott's Irish culture, because I know what you're saying. I mean, you know, it's a kind of it's like, hard to articulate what I'm saying. In West it's just, Virginia, it's, it's like just something I see. And nepotism is just yeah. like epidemic and like the government. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, you know, for those of you outside of the area, I mean, yeah, you go down to like, you know, just the courthouse or something like that. I mean, almost anybody there with any kind of job of any significance i mean probably their father had been a judge or their uncle or something like that at some point and before that i mean it had been like their grandfather or their great uncle or something like that they probably have like a uh, a building somewhere in the nearby area that's named after a branch of their family i mean you saw that kind of stuff but i mean yeah in this whole area in Appalachia and kind of areas of Southern Ohio and what have you. I mean, family names really, I mean, carry a lot of weight here and family lines, I mean, carry a lot of weight still. I mean, it's like that in other, you know, some other areas. I mean, you can kind of maybe draw some parallels to Utah, for instance, as well. But I mean, certainly this particular area, um, you know, Appalachia, kind of the Southern, you know, Ohio Valley. I mean, it's, you know, the clan sort of structure, uh, you know, I mean, really that I think derives from like the sort of Scots-Irish culture is still very much in effect in a lot of like the regional government. And yeah, that um, that can be very problematic at times. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, real quick, do you want to go over the Roden family murders? Uh, they happened in this region and generated a considerable amount of media coverage a couple of years ago. And in a lot of ways, this was the public at large's first real exposure to the curious culture that's emerged along 23. So what about this incident? Okay. Basically what you have here is you have a kind of a modern day, I would say Romeo and Juliet type of situation. You also have, like you said, a 
sort of manifestation of, you know, a lot of the, the cultural traits of the region and uh, a lot of the honor culture, which is prevalent throughout the region. So what happened was, is the Wagner family was, uh, one of them was involved with a girl by the name of Hannah Roden. Hannah Roden, they had a child together. This was sort of a uniting of the family. And I guess there was a dispute about uh, child custody. And uh, there was like sort of Hannah Roden no longer wanted to be. Um, he no longer wanted to be with uh, with Jeremy. And and so they, they sort of broke it off between one another. And they it, this escalated and sort of perpetuated itself into a sort of violent climax that you saw, uh, you know, that that played out uh, in a very melodramatic way, I would say, a very violent sort of melodramatic way. Uh, I mean, what's peculiar about this, this particular case, I think, is that there was also, like you mentioned, the, crimin the criminality, you know, previously. There was marijuana grow farms. There was also cockfighting. There was a lot of illegal activities that was being practiced by the rodents and probably also by the, I would say, the, you know, Wagners as well. So this just sort of perpetuated itself to the point to where, you know, they decided one day to plan this out. And the thing is, this was a family affair. This wasn't just one person doing a vendetta. This was an entire family affair that plotted this, planned this out to the uh, to the extent to where they wanted to blame somebody uh, within the Rodin clan, somebody within the Rodin family. They they orchestrated the event that precisely to the extent that they wanted to just you know throw the blame on one of the uh, Rodin family. And the thing is, they almost got away with it. They almost got away with blaming the Rodins. Now, also, in addition to that, what, what's unusual about this as well is this is not the only, I would say, execution-style killings in the region. There is also another execution-style killing with the, uh, with the Newsoms. There were people in Lucasville by the name of the Newsoms, and they were killed in point-blank execution-style, uh, which is interesting. At, at the same time, also... The, there was also like two shooters in the in this particular uh, incident, and also they had been plotting this since 2014. They had laid out this plot. They were surveilling their Facebook, their social media. This was targeted. This was precise, and this was calculated. And I think this shocked a lot of people. That in rural America, they probably were shocked to see that there was like th these kind of calculated sort of uh, execution, ex execution style killings. And uh, this probably blew people's minds, which is why they had to, which is, you know, I, I kind of don't believe the cartel theory. I don't buy the cartel theory. I wouldn't doubt that the Rodin family had a lot of connections to maybe cartels. But this was something that was very personal. This was something that was intimate. This was not something that was just, um, you know, cartels, when they kill people, they don't kill sort of people, you know, like like that. They, they get in, they get out, and they do it precisely, and they do it quickly. This had a very personal touch to it. 
This also had silencers and this had brass catchers as well, which is I thought was very unusual. And they even went out of their way, like I said previously, to go to a Walmart that was two hours away to uh, to buy the shoes that Jake Manley had, which is the brother of Dana Roden, one of the victims. Uh, very unusual case. Yeah, just to like add to that, too. I mean, I think a lot of the you know, attempts to try to blame the violence in this kind of region of the cartels is also nonsense. I mean, again, I'm more familiar with West Virginia than Southern Ohio, but I mean, uh, especially like in the Western part of West Virginia, like in Bloody Mango County and some of those sort of areas, it's, the cartels are not going to move in there, folks. I mean, if they even tried to, there would just be a freaking bloodbath. I mean, (laughs) Trust me, I mean, those hillbillies might be a lot of things, but they've got a lot of freaking guns and they are not going to put up with people cutting in on their business. I just, it makes no sense. I mean, the cartels are not going to waste the kind of manpower it would take to fight these types of people in regions like that that are just in the middle of nowhere with nothing. I mean, they can just go there and buy the freaking meth and the, you know, cannabis or whatever from them and then traffic it somewhere else. There's just, they're not going to freaking take the losses it would take to even try to move into a region like that. I mean, again, these families have been engaged in, I mean, you know, crime, just like the legal system in this region is all based on nepotism and cronism. I mean, a lot of these families have been engaged in smuggling and trafficking in this area for decades. I mean, in some cases, even centuries. I mean, it's just they're you know pretty freaking hardcore i mean if you've read anything about like the history of mingo county even going into the 80s i mean you know you had like sheriffs being assassinated and stuff like that i mean in the middle of downtown i mean it's just not an area where people are going to take things lying down to put it mildly so yeah that's one of the reasons why the cartel stuff i just think does not track um And another factor, too, is, I mean, there's also a lot of um, military veterans in this region as well. I was going to say that. um, You know, it's another thing that I think a lot of people tend to forget. But, I mean, this is like, you know, a major recruiting area. I mean, this whole region that we're talking about in West Virginia, northern Kentucky, southern Ohio Valley. I mean, really all throughout Appalachia and like kind of the, you know, Great Lakes area in the Midwest and what have you. I mean, this has pretty much been the heartlands historically um, to recruit for the U.S. military. Okay, so there's a lot of military families in this area. There's a lot of veterans. And this is another reason why I think, um, you know, because, again, people try to argue it's cartels because of the sophistication. It's like, well, possibly, but there's a lot of people here with military backgrounds who, you know, I mean, have probably been handling firearms since practically the time they could pick up a rifle. Okay, Uh, you know, these guys know what they're doing. Um, Uh In a lot of cases, they've been formally trained by the military. you know, it shouldn't surprise people that, I mean, locals could run a very sophisticated and very uh, ruthless organization here. We we don't need to bring in outside forces to explain this. Yeah, by the way, um, before we move on, Stephen, are you familiar with uh, a book called Albion Seed? Uh, yes, I am. I'm actually quite a big fan of that, but what David... Uh... 
shirt shoulders or something like that it's it's an excellent book i definitely would highly recommend that to anybody listening to this i wanted to ask you what do you think about the whole celtic versus let's say anglo thesis that he puts out for the south versus the midwest and also with not the midwest but the north the northwest uh, you buy I mean, that hypothesis i mean yeah to some extent i do think that there was a bit of that ongoing conflict but it was almost because again i mean you know you had like the whole thing with the society of cincinnati which the heart of that uh was really based out of like new england and new york i mean you know a lot of the families like alexander hamilton and a lot of the big kind of boston brahmin families were big in that network along with like george washington and a few of the other prominent founding fathers and this was really the network that settled like the whole northwestern territories and so forth i mean the whole area up through like ohio and um the great lakes region wisconsin michigan and so on and so forth and i mean yeah there was definitely a very different approach there i mean they were very committed to bringing alexander hamilton's um american system to this whole region they were very opposed to slavery um which again you know i mean obviously they get a lot of points for that now as they should but on the flip side of the coin i mean they also essentially crafted what became the company town as well another kind of exploitation and just in general it's sort of labor unrest that also eventually gripped that region but you know again that's another topic mm-hmm. but um you know so you can definitely see that i mean it was this vision i think that really turned uh the united states into a major industrial power like now conversely you know when you look at like kind of the other side of the country with like kind of the jeffersonians the kind of tidewater virginians who also combine with a lot of the scots irish and settling a good chunk of the south and later parts of the western states and so forth i mean they definitely had a lot of distinct differences i mean slavery was obviously uh you know seen as i mean much less of an issue among among these subsections of the populace um there was also obviously much more of a commitment to the agarian type of culture uh which again i think that you know you especially see sort of the the legacy of the scots irish culture there i mean they've always been kind of a a civilization that was built around kind of like the family farm that was manned by like a clan and so forth and it was supplemented by hunting and nearby lands and all this other kind of stuff and i mean that was kind of the the ongoing fixation with this culture as they drove further westward um but again you know i mean this also would have essentially kept the united states as uh really almost more of like a you know a developing country or something and we, <laughs> we would have just basically been you know supplying raw materials to europe um you know for their factories and so forth <laughs> certainly would have you know had a very it would have definitely uh, led to a much different modern uh, world probably to put it mildly so you know that was not the vision that prevailed um it was the opposite one that you know was very much pushed i think ultimately by this kind of protestant puritan you know sub segment of the populace and um, yeah i mean it's you know it is a fascinating thesis and i mean i do think that there is a lot of a basis in that um even though i mean again though it's kind of you know i mean there is a lot of cross pollinization though because conversely i would also argue though that manifest destiny really did have its origins in this sort of like yankee society of cincinnati milieu in general in fact i mean ohio is really 
the birthplace of the American empire on, you know, multiple levels. I mean, on the one hand, I mean, again, this was the original Western territory. I mean, the Northwest territory was the first, you know, push westward. So this is where <clears throat> manifest destiny and the, you know, thrust to colonize the West literally started at. And I mean, it was basically there in towns that were set up by this, you know, Society of Cincinnati Network, Marietta, the city of Cincinnati itself, and so forth. And then later, going into the late 19th, early 20th century, I mean, you know, I think from like 1875 to like 1920, something like seven or eight of the U.S. presidents were from Ohio, a lot of them from Cincinnati. And this was the whole, you know, area that saw, or excuse me, era that saw um, the United States emerging as a major world power. I mean, it was McKinley who... Uh, an Ohioan who got us into uh, the Spanish-American War, annexed Hawaii. I mean, this is like literally when America started to become a uh, extracontinental empire. So this was also very much rooted, you know, in Ohio politics. Honestly, I mean, Taft was another guy who pushed for a lot of this kind of stuff. So Ohio was just, you know, it was a big part of shaping a lot of this. And I mean, again, you can kind of see some of this cultural legacy, too, from you know, some of these different groups. I mean, that's I kind of think why the reasons why Ohio is so important, because it did sort of bring this sort of odd convergence of this, you know, uh, kind of hyper, uh, you know, militant kind of Scots-Irish culture on the one hand with this, um you know, more refined, but nonetheless imperialistic sort of Yankee culture. I mean, it also had this kind of messianic complex as well. Uh, and also, I mean, just really too, like you're talking about this, just, you know, the legacy just honestly, again, too, of these kind of, you know, chivalric orders and secret societies. I mean, not to get too woo-woo at this point, but I mean, this is also like another thing about this whole area that's epidemic. I mean, the Society of Cincinnati, I mean, as I'm going to get into in my series that I'm doing on this group, I mean, Skull and Bones was really very much a manifestation of or later manifestation of this kind of network. Uh, and then, of course, you have the broader Masonic legacy. I mean, in this whole area, I mean, as I'm sure you can attest to, I mean, just, you know, Masons are epidemic. and I mean, just... They are, um, including the architecture. It's everywhere in like mm -hmm. Southern Ohio. I was like, I was like, wow, am I, is this, uh, you know, am I stepping into like uh, some type of Da Vinci Code type of uh, scenario or something? It's like, it's weird. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, kind of another reason why this area is kind of fascinating because it is sort of a cross-pollinization of these cultures. And I mean, I think it kind of, spread kind of gradually to a lot of the rest of the country and uh, why we see some of this weird stuff but um anyway enough kind of philosophical musings on some of this um all right so let's get into the chillicost six give us the rundown on this uh curious development okay before we move on i just want to make some minor corrections to some of the things i said okay uh hannah Roden's boyfriend was name was uh, jake wagner not not jeremy as i said and uh addition to that I want to say also that um, that there was also I'm trying to look here. Let's see. Also, I think I covered all that. I covered the whole thing about um, about the surveillance. But uh, that's it. That's it. I just want to make that correction. All right. Oh, you ready for the Chillicothe Six then? All right. Let me. And another sort of interesting thing too with the rodents. I mean, just sort of again how you almost see this 
I mean, it's almost like a ritual drama playing out in a way. Yeah, melodrama. Know, it's, you know, it only almost again echoes in some ways the Hatfield McCoy's feud and some of the um, just broader, I mean, Scots Irish traditions, like we're saying, the shotgun wedding and the, you know, the border raids. And, you know, again, I mean, I think the, um, what the Wagner family had, like, what a quite a few family members across the border in Kentucky, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there was kind of this, like, you know, trans-border sort of, like... Let, let me also add that there is, like, this tension between Ohio and Kentucky that it still exists to this day. It's almost like when you go across the bridge, because South Shore, Kentucky, and Portsmouth and Southern Ohio are not that far distant apart. And a lot of people that have roots in Southern Ohio are practically from Eastern Kentucky. There's some people that are dyed in the wool there, but there are also, like, people that come from you know far-flung eastern kentucky but a lot of like there's a lot of tension there there's a lot of disputes over the ohio river that's uh figured prominently so there's a lot of denial i would say in ohio uh, a lot of people in southern ohio and even like i'd say in the urban areas that do have roots in uh, i would say eastern kentucky and west virginia and greater appalachia yeah, again, it's just, you know, it's another thing about this that's just so sort of fascinating how, again, you know, you once again see like a lot of these tensions manifesting in these like border areas and what have you, um, just, you know, the kind of thing the Scots-Irish have been involved in, I mean, for, you know, how many centuries now? <laughs> uh, so, okay, you ready now? For yeah, the- let's get into the Chillicothe Six. Let's do All it. All right, Matt, let's do it. All right. Um, basically, what happened was it was around spring 2014. There were a lot of um, there were a lot of sex workers. There was a lot of people that were ending up dead, and this alarmed a lot of people to why this was happening. And I, I just want to say, I, I do want to humanize. I don't want to just talk about, you know, the, these people like they're nothing. Like the you know police just discarded them and said they were you know just human refuse because they they had a little problems and they may have been you know sex workers. And that's part of the problem and why that, you know, this problem was sort of swept underneath underneath the rug. Uh, so back in, in 2014, a lot of women started ending up dead in the streets of Chillicothe. And people were perplexed on why this was happening. It started, of course, with um, a woman by the name of Charlotte Trago. Charlotte Trago, Trago was like the first woman to disappear she was like she, she was like the first one that caught the attention of the people. And um, what was odd about this case is, like I said, a lot of the a lot of the women, they know one another. A lot of the women, they, they sort of fraternize with one another. And it sort of illustrates what we were talking about previously, the, the breakdown, I would say, of, you know, of like a lot of these communities, a lot of these communities started breaking down a lot of them also you know started adapting kind of undesirable uh type of characteristics that uh came as a result of addiction came as a result of heroin being flooded into the region of uh, chillicothe so going with charlotte trago she disappeared and um to this day it remains a mystery about her the next one was of course was uh, tamika lynch and uh, she she also disappeared. She disappeared as as well. And um, they would later find her body as well. Just they would find her body. The common theme in a lot of these killings is that 
they all end up seem to end up near a river. They seem to be pushed off a bridge of some sort. And then you had Wanda Lemons. She disappeared somewhere around November 2014. She's still missing. Like in, in most of these cases, there are, I think, four accounted for, and there's still two missing. And one of them is Charlotte Trago, and one of them is Wanda Living's. Uh, the later victim is, of course, Shasta Himmerlich. She disappeared somewhere around Christmas 2014. Her body was found somewhere around in the Scioto River. And like in most cases, like I said, with the local police department, they all rule these deaths as suicides. They all rule them as suicides. They all say that these, you know, these, these women are suicidal because of their lifestyle, because of conditions that have led them to this. Uh, there's no questioning about beyond, you know, what exactly brought them into this, you know, position or point. They just simply rule them off as uh, suicide as was illustrated in a documentary that had gone. Now, the this fifth one was Tif Tiffany uh, Sayer. She disappeared somewhere around May 2015. Uh, her body was found weeks later. She was wrapped. She was also wrapped in a, in a sheet. And I want to be I want to make it clear, despite the chronology of these of these women. They disappeared at varying different times. They were found at varying different times. There's no set chronology on these bodies. Uh, it's just they, they, you know, they, they, it happened sporadically over a certain period. And this led a lot of people to form, formulate a lot of um, theories about the disappearance of the Chillicothe Six. Uh, the next one is Timberly Clater. And uh, she was found in a vacant building. She was found shot up. Um, and, uh, we really, I mean, we, that's uh, Tiffany Clater is sort of the open and shut case in all of these. We know for sure who killed her and we are sort of, uh, definite on who killed her. The other ones are kind of question marks. We don't know exactly who killed them. We don't know if it's like, uh, the obvious people. And that's what I mean. There's a lot of disconnect between the law enforcement and also a lot of the, the, I would say there's like two worlds that are colliding with one another. There's sort of the street world, the underworld, and there's also like the formalized world, the formal world that everyone kind of lives in. They're kind of colliding in these, these types of things because these women, they come from very different backgrounds. Most of them are middle class. Most of them are not, they were not raised in the inner city. They come from a pretty good background. They we're not predisposed to this type of lifestyle. It's just something that they sort of picked up along the way. I'm not trying to be judgmental. I'm just saying that that's pretty much the case, the case here. So that pretty much is the rundown of the Chillicothe six. Yeah. And again, also the uh, Joe Berlinger docuseries, uh, go on the missing wind of Ohio, you know, also would throw in and recommend that as well. It's uh really a great account of this and also does a good job connecting the broad, you know, the, the disappearances there to some of the other missing women in the broader region. Uh, so, yeah. And um, Joe Berlinger always kind of seems to be Johnny on the spot with this kind of stuff. Those of you unaware, yes, I did. I don't know much about him. Oh, he did the, uh, um, the documentaries on the um, West Memphis three paradise. Oh, okay. Ones. Okay. Uh, did the one on, Oh God. I... Paradise lost. 
Yeah, the Paradise Lost uh, documentaries on the West Memphis Three. I think he did the one on Whitey Bulger, the documentary. Um, I think one on Ted Bundy. He's done a lot of like really prominent ones. He's uh, got the docu series on the um, oh the Alyssa Lamb uh, death at the Cecil Hotel. I'm actually in the middle of uh, watching that. That's kind of another uh, interesting one as well. But uh, yeah, and he's actually done uh, one of one, my opinion one of the more underrated horror films, uh, the Blair Witch Project Two, uh, Book of Shadows. It's kind of an interesting movie. <laughs> especially in light of some of his other projects. But uh, yes, 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 it's uh, fascinating that he was uh, the guy who did uh, the Gone series. That but is interesting. He seems to be Johnny on the spot for a lot of these kinds of topics. <laughs> uh, all right, so um, there was a lot of early speculation that the disappearances of these women were due to a serial killer. Yeah. So can you take us to the pros and cons of that narrative? Okay, well... At first, when I looked into this, these events, these various different events, of course, kind of having the pattern recognition mind that I sort of have, I was automatic. I was kind of thinking, it's sort of weird that all these women kind of disappear. They disappear within a um, short amount of time. So I was sort of thinking maybe a Jack the Ripper situation or maybe a, a type of situation that is the typical sort of serial killer scenario. I'm not talking about the Dave McGowan sort of, you know, controlled, let's just say like controlled serial killers. But I was thinking maybe this is the work of somebody that just goes around and just, you know, bodies, you could say women that are of the night. And because that would be the most likely culprit in this scenario, you know, this case, however, knowing the insight that I do into sort of street life, you could say, from my teenage years, I guess I'm revealing a little bit about myself um, and knowing a little bit about the underworld that I do, I can say that what happened here is not the handiwork of the serial killer. It's more or less kind of the handiwork of somebody that moves into territory, wants to control their territory, wants to take over, and he has a series of connections and networks some even extending maybe uh, into networks that ordinary drug dealers, ordinary sort of pimps wouldn't have. And this gives you sort of a purview into how this, this functions on a level. So I would say the serial killer angle is interesting, but it doesn't necessarily fit the MO of like Neil Falls or, or the other serial killers they were trying to implicate. Uh, Neil Falls, for instance, uh, you know, he doesn't, his MO is that, he was a drifter. He moved from place to place. He chopped up bodies, um, sort of a loner. Anybody that would like look like Neil Falls would probably look like a weirdo to most of these women. Most of these women, they were socially, even though they were kind of in the underworld, they were still socially adept to the scene there. And this is like a specific scene that you have to sort of be tapped into to understand it. Uh, sort of the the dynamics of it, the the moder the nuances of it, I, I would say, and and to me that just doesn't fit a serial killer. I mean, it doesn't fit the the mo of a serial killer would be sort of uh, just kill and move, kill and move. The uh, however, th this has more of the handiwork of a person who is claiming spot territory for drug dealing, and I would say for pimping, and also sort of has some awareness into sort of the small town innocence. It's somebody maybe from a more urban atmosphere that has came into a more smaller town 
and they sort of know how to exploit the, let's say, the community atmosphere in this area. Um, a serial killer, of course, they can do that. And there are, you know, impulsive and there are like unorganized and disorganized, depending on what theory you believe about, you know, about serial killers. There's various different, you know, MOs, but this does not fit the MO of Neil Falls. Are you familiar with this, Stephen? Oh, with the allegations of Neil Falls being the killer of yeah. Joe Cotty's. Uh, just a little bit of the stuff that you had sent me, but <clears throat> it kind of seemed like in general, uh, Neil Falls had kind of become like a popular uh, scapegoat for a lot of different killings. Because like what well, there was also some speculation I-70. the I-70 killer too, right? Yeah, yeah, there were some allegations because he looked like the person that was killing people around I-70 and he had lived in the Midwest for a little while and he was kind of transient. And some of the, uh, some of the MO there kind of fit the description, but however, like I said, if you look deep into the lives of a lot of these women in, in Chillicothe, you'll sort of see it fits the pattern of your everyday sort of person that fell into misfortune that fell into sort of the, the uh, thralls, I would say, of somebody that is a pimp or a drug dealer. Because, you know, growing up in the type of environment I did, I've seen these types of women like every day. These are This is like a common occurrence. These sort of stories, they're misfortunate, they're unfortunate, and um, it just plays out. Because a lot of the, I would say, people... You know, that move into like, let's say, you know, places like Chillicothe and Portsmouth, Ashland or whatever, um, they find a willing ally <clears throat> in a lot of the people that are kind of on the bottom. And a lot of them sort of like uh, make friends and become acquaintances with people on the bottom. And uh, before you know it, they're sort of like, you know, trapping outside of their apartment. You know, I, I don't know if people know. <laughs> I'm pretty sure people listen to this podcast know what trapping is, but they're they're like selling drugs outside of you know the apart people's apartments, and these women they kind of need money because a lot of them are you know vulnerable, you could say, and they sort of like willingly do it, and they don't really understand it. Like a lot of times when they uh, partner with these types of people, that they they don't always have their best interests in mind. So I, I don't think the serial killer scenario for this is, is likely. I did it first. I did it first before I knew anything about the sort of lives of the women. But now that I've, I've gotten acquainted with, with their lives from watching the documentary and looking over, and also from personal experience as well, which I know a lot of people will probably say, oh, that's anecdotal. You can't really use that when determining these things, but... I think that uh, you can use a little bit of nuances and let's just say a good little heuristics when you're trying to uh, dive into these types of, you know, scenarios. Yeah, it seems pretty clear that, I mean, the one thing that kind of unites all of the Chillicothe Six was just their uh, their general involvement and in kind of like the uh, the broader kind of criminal underworld within this community. And I mean, again, it kind of goes back, I think, to, in some ways, I mean, the cultural legacy of the Scots-Irish. I mean, again, there's always been this long-standing history of criminality, I mean, within the broader community. I mean, it's not, 
you know, that uncommon for, I mean, you know, one of your, I mean, actually probably multiple <clears throat> members to probably be engaged in some kind of hustling or something. No, it's not. In this area, you know, again, I'm just being honest. I mean, this is what it's like up here. Um, you know, usually it's not necessarily seen as a bad thing to supplement your income through some kind of minor criminal activity. It has a long history here. And in these particular regions, you know, you're not going to be that far removed from it, even if you're trying to stay away from it. You know, again, that's just you know, one of the quirks of this area. So, um, and this is kind of how, I mean, you end up in this sort of milieu that a lot of these women did. And I mean, certainly as the opioid crisis did become epidemic, I mean, it took a, uh, it was already in a pretty tough situation and made it all the more worse. So now it's fentanyl. Now it's fentanyl. Yeah. And I mean, it's gotten even worse with fentanyl, yeah. certainly. So now uh, a murder conviction was eventually made in the case of one <clears throat> of these women. So tell us a bit about the man who went down for the crime and his allegations concerning a local drug dealer, one Ernest Dollar Bill Moore. Uh, give us their stories. Well, the guy who actually went down to, for it was a guy named Jason McCray. McCray was an associate of Dollar Bill, not Dollar Bill himself. Dollar Bill went down off, I think, uh, trafficking uh, narcotics and also torture. He had tortured somebody, his an associate of his, and that's sort of the crime that he went down for. If you like, notice doc in the documentary, they talked to a guy named Cheese. Um, they talked to a guy named Cheese. Al Angela Clemente talks to a guy named, you know, Cheese, and they indicate that, uh, you know, Dollar Bill had tortured somebody and he went down. But Jason McRae is uh, kind of a, you know, I would say a scumbag himself in that uh, he was, uh, he actually was a sexual offender. Um, he was also a, a drug addict. Uh, these were the type of people that Dollar Bill were associating with. Of course, Dollar Bill. Bill was like in the underworld. He was a, you know, you know, they kind of joked throughout the documentary that he was trying to be a kingpin. <laughs> uh, he was, he was sort of a, let's just say he wasn't necessarily the smoothest, uh, you would say, drug dealer. Uh, he was, he was highly dependent on a lot of these women. And so with a network like that, and by the way, all of the females that uh, allegedly got killed and thrown off bridges and and put into lakes and rivers and all got killed are are uh, all associates of dollar bill every single one of them are associates of dollar bill uh, every single one of them and they they all tie to him and him you know and dollar bill himself he had been selling drugs from galliopolis ohio to point pleasant west virginia all the way to columbus uh, which is a major hub in human trafficking and, and also a major hub where the Alaska uh, cartels had set up shop in the, in the 90s. Uh, so, I mean, he was very well acquainted with this, this network and he, he knew full advantage. Now, I, it's, hard to say, the dollar, it's hard to say if Dollar Bill can be implicated, but I think probably a couple of the women, let's say like Tamika Lynch and probably Char Charlotte Trago, uh, because it was it was thought that they were informants or snitches, probably did, you know, probably did get executed by dollar bill by what we call a hot shot. And that is like putting uh, types of very 
high doses of cut of, of you know, heroin into the, these women's syringes and they just killed them automatically. And the police themselves are going to rule it as a suicide. They're not going to investigate further. And there's also indication that Dollar Bill may have been an informant himself. So what most people need to realize about, you know, about drugs is that 80% conviction rates are all done by informants. Like the, the, the legal system really is just propped up on, on informants. And uh, this was the case that we had with Dollar Bill. But I do think he, he did some of these crimes. He did some of the murders, uh, but most of his associates, I would say like Krell Williams, like, uh, like Jason McRae, I think did, did kill one of the women. And uh, he also tortured one of his, uh, one of his associates. Um, it's, it's quite apparent Dollar Bill was a very sadistic man and his services would have no doubt come in handy with people like Mike Moran and, and uh, Chip Daniels, one of the dirty cops that is alleged in the documentary. So this guy was definitely an asset, I would say, of, of, many, of many kinds to the, uh, the local law enforcement and also to, uh, to others. Yeah, I mean, it seems like they, you know, there has been a bit of an effort to try to put the narrative out there that Dollar Bill was kind of the uh, the criminal mastermind behind all of this. And well, I mean, no doubt he definitely played a role. I mean, he was, I think, at best hanging fruit. a lieutenant or something like that. I mean, he wasn't, uh, you know, one of the upper echelon bosses or anything of that nature. Um, so yeah, definitely something to keep in mind as we kind of get into some of these other uh, accounts here. So, uh, what's interesting about all of the, uh, the similarities and even our connections uh, to the happenings is what's, uh, what's going on in nearby Portsmouth. So let's get into that town now, starting with the disappearance of Nicole Alloway. Oh yeah, Nicole Alloway. I would call her, she's sort of the uh, Laura Palmer, I would say, of, of Southern Ohio. And all they think she's not actually from Southern Ohio. She's actually from North Carolina. What happened was, is that a local boy named Dylan, who, who um, had seduced her, I guess, online and had brought her. This is back in the day when, you know, MySpace was a thing. Uh, so basically she, you know, she got taken by this guy named Dylan. Dylan brought her into Portsmouth. And she was like having cold feet about going to Portsmouth. She was like telling her grandma, you know, her grandma, Diane, uh, Diana, let's uh, I, I'm not so sure about this guy or about Portsmouth in general. I don't know if I should like make, you know, the, the commitment to go down there and see her. But like I said, she was sort of a vulnerable girl. And she, back in on May 2009, she basically got on a Greyhound, suspended all her apprehensions and just went and saw, you know, Dylan. Now, of course, <laughs> it turns out Dylan, when she when she touched down in Portsmouth, I could only imagine what she was thinking about the, the local surroundings. You know, she's there from North Carolina and she's also with Dylan and Dylan isn't um, isn't like one of, let's just say, the socialites that live in Portsmouth. He's not of the upper class. He is sort of a marginal figure. And uh, she was already getting a sort of apprehension about this, already wanting to kind of go back to North Carolina. So she she gets involved with with uh, with Dylan. Dylan has a cousin by the name of Essie Breach. 
SE Breach, coincidentally, is also a client and prostitute for the later character we'll be talking about, Mike Baran. So she sort of tapped into to that, and she's, you know, already, like, Nicole's having, like, second thoughts. So after spending about a couple days there, Nicole is like, I want to get out of here. I want to go back to North Carolina. She calls her grandma, and her grandma wires her about $20, um, which I'm sure this is 2009, I'm sure it's uh, it was you know with inflation it did probably doesn't cost that much it probably costed you know little back then. So she she like uh, and also let me mention that EC Breach and also Dylan are they're on this farm. They're like on this farm and they're like caretakers for this farm uh, and you know she's like wondering what's going on and and they're also involved with a lot of like uh, distribution of meth. They're, they're like distribution of meth. They're transporting meth. And, and like, like I said, she's not used to this kind of stuff. Uh, she's not used to, you know, she's not a dope addict. She's, she's from the other side of the tracks. She's not used to this. Um, so afterwards, a local drug dealer offers to drive her to you know, to, to, uh, the bus station in the morning, you know, and, um, while doing so it, it the, the drug dealer craft, Jason craft, he gets pulled over by a detective, a DEA, allegedly a DEA agent. Uh, it's never been confirmed if he's a DEA agent or not. He's sort of a local detective and, um, well, what happens is, is that uh, she never, she gets pulled over. Jason Kraft gets arrested. And let me mention, Jason Kraft is one of those figures that's in the underworld in Portsmouth. His dad, uh, Clarence Kraft, is, is like part of the sort of crime syndicate within uh, Portsmouth itself in the greater, you know, Ohio. So you can pretty much guess that these are not the best of people. And... Meanwhile, she gets apprehended by this uh, by Detective Timberlake. Detective Timberlake takes her and, uh, you know, calls her grandmother up. Her grandmother says that, um, no, she's she's a good girl. She's not involved in any kind of, uh, you know, drugs. She's 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 good. And this convinces Detective Timberlake and she releases she releases. I mean, he releases her to a woman's shelter. Okay. the The goal was to get her out of the, let's say, the um, you know, woman's shelter and bring her back to, you know, to to Ashland to catch the bus. The unfortunate thing is she doesn't catch the bus. Her body ends up in a little Bear Creek. It ends up allegedly the police rule it off as an overdose. Because allegedly this guy named this guy named uh, Richard oh Richie was doing you know meth with her in this like stolen truck that EC Breach had uh, had taken and um, the rest is history basically the rest is history she ends up dead and it's ruled a suicide. Oh, people wash their hands of this entire allegation. 
They try, her family tries desperately to bring in America's Most Wanted and the entire Scioto Police Department, Scioto County Police Department, totally say, we don't want nothing to do with this. Um, you know, we're not going to investigate this. That's pretty much the case of Nicole Holloway. It's, it's something that's ongoing, even because there is no clarity. There is a woman, <coughs> I think her name is Carrie Peterson. She has a website called Justice for Nicole. And um, that's pretty much it's it's a ongoing thing that has never ha- faced any closure in the you know in, in Portsmouth. All right, so uh, uh, I think now would be a good time to get into the local institution that is Michael Moran. So who is this guy? Okay, Mike Moran is the city council and attorney for uh, for Portsmouth and well former city council he's the guy that uh, most people see when they're trying to get off their charges the the only thing is is Mike Moran also happens to have a little side hustle and that is uh, prostitution and arranging type of you know dances for and and uh, sexual activity for a lot of the local people and and high officials in the region in addition to that Mike Moran also has quite a seedy past. His, his past is that he even found a way to uh, coerce the local people into even admitting that he even admitting him to the title of city councilman. So any kind of uh, willing, willingness and dealings that deals with the lo- local uh, corrupt government in Portsmouth, he is involved. He is the one that is that is moving. He's also the one that's involved and arranges all of the uh, so-called human trafficking within uh, Portsmouth, and uh, someone could even argue maybe the greater Southern Ohio itself. That is that is Mike Moran, and he has like associates in every district. He has uh, he has people that he's connected to everywhere in Southern Ohio. Yeah, I mean, despite being an Ohioan, he's kind of like the classic stereotype of the backwoods Southern lawyer. Um, <laughs> so, um, you know, Joe Berlinger's a docu-series going, uh, at least that's kind of the impression you walk away from it uh, with concerning Moran. Um, all right, so tell us a bit about Moran's buddy, Larry Dean Porter. Uh, who may even be a little bit more colorful than Mr. Moran himself, if that's even possible. So what's Dean or Potter Dean's story? Now, Larry Dean Potter is definitely much more colorful, and I would argue much more of a dirtbag than Moran, although they're kind of cut from the same cloth, and they utilize, let's just say, narcotics and prescription pills at the time to hook a lot of the local women uh, to, to, you know, to get to feed their addiction uh, for sexual favors. Now, Dean is especially licentious in that he he also targets their kids, uh, which is absolutely he's an absolutely disgusting creep. And local people in like Portsmouth call him Demon Dean. He uh, he also is like known for entrapping and blackmailing mo- a lot of the political officials in the region. Uh, the only reason why he came to prominence is because of a, a recent bust that happened in 2019. I think the Ohio, oh, the FBI actually, they had to call in the, F, the FBI child exploitation 
uh, forces were brought in to, to investigate Dean and his, all of his dealings. So when they finally get Dean, they find out he's got just layers and layers of, uh, of child pornography. I mean, this, this sounds familiar. This is a common thread um, throughout many of these different, uh, you know, allegations and all these different scandals. Uh, credit I have to give is to a guy named uh, Stephen C. Um, trying to think of his name. Stephen C. What is his name? Anyway, he wrote a book called Dean, Dean Feed back in 2014, which sort of foreshadowed a lot of this. In that book, he alleges that Dean is involved with uh, biker gangs. Uh, he's involved with a lot of uh, transporting marijuana you know, to and from Mexico. Again, that connection is there. And he's also known for like exploiting small, small children by uh, the, you know, which is disgusting uh, of the women that he gets addicted and uh, just all around kind of, uh, I would say dirt bag and definitely not a character you'd want to associate with. But when it comes to people like Mike Moran, it doesn't seem like there is a, there's nothing wrong with even associating with someone like a, a pedo. And in uh, addition to that, he gets all of his family involved. He also has a way to manipulate the local drug force and just entrap, you know, politicians. And uh, that's just all around about Dean, good old devil Dean. Yeah, he is certainly a character. Um <laughs> Like many of the figures in this story, and uh, unfortunately not often in a positive way. <laughs> All right, so let's return to one of the Chillicothe women, or at least I think she was one of the Chillicothe women, uh, Megan. No, Lank she's actually from Portsmouth. Okay, she was Portsmouth. Okay. Yeah, she's from Portsmouth. Um, her name is Megan Lancaster. Megan Lancaster, okay. Yeah. So she ties a lot of these threads together, so can you give us a deep dive into some of her connections? Okay. Megan Lancaster is directly connected to i would say mostly all of the officials of portsmouth and she of course like most of the other women in these um you know she was also engaging let's just say with uh, prostitution and uh exotic dances uh she was directly connected to moran and she disappeared on 2013 she her, you know she was her car was found outside of a rally's and the doors were wide open. The wallet was just sitting there and the car stayed there for two days. And the local Portsmouth police did not pick up the car, um, you know, in, for two days. And they also didn't tow it for six months. So it was never taken into evidence. And what's curious about her is that she has a sister-in-law by the name of uh, Katie Lancaster. And well, Katie Lancaster was on a crusade to find Megan, to find her. And it, it turns out that um, one night, Megan, one night, Megan, they, they got a call from some people that had Megan Lancaster at a hotel. So her and Megan's brother, which is her husband, go there and wait, wait it out, even knock on one of the doors. And it turns out that Megan's not in that, uh, that particular hotel um, she's holed up in another hotel. So it seems almost like they were playing a cruel game on Katie Lancaster. It's almost seems like they were 
sadistic about it and and uh, was just enjoying and reveling in it. Now, what's curious about this even is that, well, as you can guess, Katie Lancaster ends up dead. She ends up dead very recently in 2020 of all the people. She And, and I don't think I've ever seen her autopsy anywhere. I've, I have not seen, I don't even know if people even did an autopsy on Katie Lancaster. So that's kind of interesting that she ended up, you know, she ended up dead. We'll probably never know what happened there with, with, with Katie or, uh, or get to the, like, it's, it's kind of unfortunate, kind of like the other things in this case. It's just, it's just a lot of it is just, it cannot, it, you can't get closure in it. You know, it's just either people don't seem to care about it or they, they don't seem to want to explore, you know, whatever angle there is in Southern Ohio. So that's the rundown with uh, Katie. I mean, Katie Lancaster and her uh, sister-in-law, Megan Lancaster, which I would call her kind of the, she's kind of also the Laura Palmer of like Portsmouth. Hello? Yeah, sorry about that. I was grabbing a cup of coffee. Um, but yeah, like, and another thing too that I've kind of noted is it seems like there was a fair amount of, uh, and frankly, people who have been investigating these developments that have sh turned up dead uh, under some. Yes. There, because um, I'm, if I'm recalling now too, there was also what the activist um, the Berlinger has in the uh, Going Docu series uh, from Portsmouth who was helping. Uh, the women who had been trafficked and uh, with drug problems, she was like, what herself? Yeah, Nikki Blankenship. Yeah, she had died, like, what, of a heroin overdose? No, 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 that was, uh, no, that was Zenobi. Zenobi was, yes, uh, was, Zenobi. was Megan Lancaster's friend. She was trying to get yeah, out yeah. of the, uh, you know, of prostitution. That was her, that was her friend. And yeah, she, you know what happened to her? She ended up dead uh, shortly after the, uh, after the documentary aired um yeah i noticed that there seemed to have been especially with like a fair amount of um overdoses and again given that um you know as you had talked about earlier hot yeah, the hot shot kind yeah. of a popular way to uh you know take out some of these women i mean you definitely have to wonder about some of the um the deaths connected to the women in portsmith and whether or not i mean they're really, let me, really targeted let me also elaborate about because uh, there's like so I'm, i apologize mm. there's just so much to this case it's hard oh. to condense down let me uh, let me also elaborate that when they found Megan's uh, car, they also found a black book, and this uh, this black book had every single official in there from from the guy that actually what they were interviewing the the uh, police investigator they were interviewing, and you could just tell by the sneering sort of condescension in the guy's uh, sort of face that he knew that uh, like he was going to get away with it. And he was like, sort of, that's just my opinion. I, I think the guy was just sneering all the time. The same thing goes with the Chillicothe. Uh, I think, uh, you know, detective down there when you know, they were talking to Angela Clemente, like the, the guys were just, they were just sneering and he was just saying, no, there's no way that I'm connected to, uh, you know, Megan Lancaster or that I partook in any of those like services. And it turns out that her sister-in-law, Katie, called him up and saying, what are you doing with my, uh, my sister-in-law's number? It's kind of strange that you're also in charge of the case and you have my sister-in-law's number. Uh, that's kind of strange. Uh, so that, that's another oddity about, uh, about the, you know, the, the car they found at a rallies in, in Portsmouth. 
Yeah, that, that also it also gets Mike Moran. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. Oh, you're fine. Um, but it also reminds me of another point that I wanted to make back with Dollar Bill. But like, also in the case of a lot of the women that we've been talking about, like with Chillicothe Six, and I think Megan Lancaster, and a few of the other ones. If I recall correctly, there was pretty compelling evidence that many of them had also worked as um, uh, police informants as well. Oh yeah, police informants, and also. Let me say also, going back to Mike Moran, the way he liked to also arrange the women is he liked to have them work as cleaners. That was the euphemism he used. So in many ways, I don't know if you've, you, of course, you know, all people have listened to this are fans of Twin Peaks. Uh, you notice there, it's kind of like equivalent to the makeup counter in Twin Peaks. It's sort of a euphemism that's used uh, for, you know, kind of prostitution and human trafficking. The, uh, you know, the cleaners or dog walkers, that's another code word that was used, uh, you know, in by Mike Moran. And also like in this black book, there's like highlighting different kind of increments of money and it was color coded. So, I mean, there's there's that that's going on in, you know, in this in this case as well. Yeah, that was one of the things with her black book. It was coded, which is another reason why there had been some speculation that she was some kind of an informant because she um she had kept really meticulous details of a lot of the criminality that she was um observing which was obviously quite extensive so yeah um gold mine of information and which again makes a lot of the i wonder where it's at now yeah 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 i mean the fact that yes it along with a lot of the other um really compelling evidence has just disappeared um again as we've kind of talked about already there's just so many people who are connected to this have died it's uh... now mike moran himself he got raided in 2020 and he's uh he also like uh, got bailed out i think somewhere in october 2020 he got you know apprehended and then he died he died the next year which under mysterious circumstances i don't think they've ever you know um revealed his autopsy either you know, so like uh, it's possible he had a heart attack due to old age, uh, but I don't know if it was that imminent. Um, he, maybe he killed himself because he didn't want to reveal, you know, money, many of his connections, because there's no doubt that Mike Moran had been doing this since 2003 and probably even further back. Um, if you can, there's like an interesting sort of video that was done by the Portsmouth Public Library going over Mike Moran. It's kind of uh, eerie to watch now knowing all this stuff, but he just, he seems, he seems kind of normal. And then you learn this about him and it's like, it's, he's kind of seedy, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's definitely a mystery. And, um, you know, again, I mean, he wasn't a spring chicken and I mean, he wasn't, you know, the healthiest guy in the world. I mean, he was probably true a, enough. He was overweight. Uh, um, yeah. So, I mean, uh, at his age and given, you know, I mean, his, um, you know, not exactly stress, stress yeah. and not exactly peak physical condition. I mean, you know, a heart attack is not, I mean, you know, beyond the realm of possibility, certainly. But I mean, no doubt it was a very convenient for a lot of people. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all right. So there have been rumblings that there might have been some kind of connection between the stuff that we've been describing in the operation that Epstein and Lex Wessner were running out of Columbus, which is off of Route 23 after all. And it's only about an hour from Chillicothe to boot, if I remember correctly. So yeah, tell us about that. I think this is like the juicy detail that everyone listening to this is like ready for. They, they're like, 
you know, that other stuff, it's interesting, but this is like the juicy morsel that uh, we want in the show. We want to hear what are the connections to the big dogs of, uh, of you know, in conspiracy circles or as in parapolitics, as, as you refer to it. Well, the connection is that Mike Moran also uh, sent girls across various different states. He sent them to, you know, Columbus. He sent them to Chicago. He sent them to New York. And he also seemed to have sent them to Palm Beach, Florida at the same time that the whole Epstein Island is, was going on. The whole entire time that that was going on, uh, the, they sent girls there. And in addition to that, Angela Clemente tried her best to have this type of four-year request on Lex Wexner. And uh, she alleges that there is a connection maybe to Mike Moran to, uh, to Lex Wexner. Now, the linchpin in all this to confirm or deny, and also I want to say also there was, you know, Moran's associates, I'll get back to the point. Moran's associates are just as interesting as Moran himself. There was a guy named Eubanks. Eubanks had a connection to uh, heroin and also to steroids. Now that is the connection to that would transport the women uh, to various different places. And of course, like he also had other people transporting the women. Uh, anyone that was associated was transporting the women in and out of uh, Portsmouth. And there were like other people like Phil Malone that was doing it too. But Eubanks is the center between, you know, Epstein, Lexner and, um, I don't know how much credibility someone like Maria Farmer has. I'm not really sure. I think her probably credibility has been kind of diminished a little bit. But I'm sure she would know if there is a connection between Mike Moran and Clemente as well would probably know in, ter in terms of that connection because she does say it in like her FOIA request. She tried to put to the FBI, but I think around the time she put in the FOIA request, the Epstein thing was current. Cause that's like, it's like six years, six years. I think it's like, uh, it's like maybe like six years now it's like six years old. So it was probably undergoing investigation. Uh, in addition to that, there's also like connections to Mike Moran has to dollar bill as well that Angela Clemente also uh, states that, uh, you know, there, there was a connection there. They were seen by other like law enforcement agencies, you know, other law enforcement, other um, police saw her with uh, dollar bill, but that is like the alleged connection with uh, Epstein. I know it's, it's, and, and also Lex Wexner, it's not necessarily the most open and shut case, uh, but it would make sense that there would possibly be a connection with, you know, rural Southern Ohio and women, being transported across the state and to other areas uh, across America, including Florida. So that that's the connection. If we had the FOIA request, if we could ever get it, uh, we could possibly potentially answer that question. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, you know, and this is like one of the aspects of the Epstein thing that I mean, a lot of people are kind of um, baffled by, I mean, you know, if I'm kind of the outside, I mean, why Ohio? Why was he... Uh, spending time out there operating with like Wex Westner and what have you because I mean again a lot of people don't really grasp the significance of Ohio as a trafficking hub but I mean because of the 
the centrality of the state. I mean, it's, you know, it's within, you know, four or five hours of so many major cities. I mean, Chicago, Detroit, New York, um, Washington. I mean, a lot of, uh, you know, obviously right across the border with like Louisiana, um, or I mean, excuse me, I mean, Louisville, I mean, uh, you know, it's close to a lot of major cities uh, throughout the East Coast, really. Uh, you, you know, you have also the presence of the Ohio, of the, um, you know, Ohio Mississippi River that runs through it. I mean, all this other kind of stuff. So for this reason, historically, it's usually been a major hub of trafficking because it is so, you know, centrally located in the East Coast. And I mean, in that context, I mean, especially when you get into things like human trafficking, which I mean, there's clearly an epidemic of in Ohio, and specifically in this region around Columbia, I mean, it makes a lot of sense that a guy like Epstein, I mean, if he is a uh, significant player in you know, human trafficking, along with Lex Wesner, why they would be set up in a region like this. And again, I mean, this probably plays into why um, historically a lot of sketchy characters connected with this kind of stuff have uh, turned up in this region um you know my research partner and i keep that one dennis have looked at a lot of larry mcdonald's papers um that he had for the various orders of saint john i mean he was involved in at least three of them and i mean these groups have been around since the 50s they've been extensively linked into the christian identity subsection and the gladio you know kind of american gladio network with a lot of uh, domestic terrorism but i mean in the ohio branches there were several of them there and um Gosh, you know, I mean, at least one of them had uh, some figures who were convicted sex offenders in it. And I mean, if I remember correctly, I mean, there was like another one based out of Akron that was trying to set up like an orphanage with the assistance of the Saudi ambassador. And they had really, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. They had like, wow. like writing letters of recommendation. So, I mean, you have groups like that. I mean, that have been linked with a lot of criminality that were operating there. And, um, Obviously, too, you can't forget about Michael Aquino, Colonel Michael Aquino. <laughs> I mean, he was stationed in um, no, um, in Fort Knox for a time in Kentucky. But, I mean, he did uh, go and lecture a lot in the Ohio area around, um, you know, Ray Patterson and Dayton and that kind of thing. And I uh, helped set up several satanic grottos and so forth around here. So <clears throat> there's always, in general, been kind of a bigger cold scene with the bait cabal and some of these other groups. So just you know a lot of interesting characters here and there have been a fair amount that have been implicated in some serious criminality i mean human trafficking and just the the broader legacy that this uh region has in that yeah it's surprising it's surprising yeah well i mean again you know when you sort of look at the centrality and i mean how it you know kind of because I mean, again this is also why i mean just in general ohio was such a big hub for commercial trade for years i mean it's a great location for this kind of thing i mean you know with the uh with the mississippi river and i mean a lot of the railroads going through it and what have you but i mean obviously there can be a dark side to that as well all right so as we head into the home stretch let's veer a bit into high strangeness the whole area we've been talking about is right in what was once the heartland of the hopewell civilization there are some incredible earthworks that run through this whole region so tell us a bit about the ones in Portsmouth uh, to start oh. off with. Okay, well, they're divided into A, B, and C. And the one that most people know about, and there's still like, you know, there's still quite a bit of, it's, it's horseshoe shape. 
uh, it is is like uh, part of like um, I'd say it's it's part of like Group A. That's like most of the mound that most people are, you know, f- acquainted with when they talk about Portsmouth. Um, it's basically a twenty mile stretch. All of them are interconnected, by the way. Like every single mound, A, B, and C, they're all connected, and they all seem to be part of a contiguous type of you know Hopewell. I think one of them was done, the Biggs Mound, which is located more towards Greenup, Kentucky, uh, on the Greenup County side, South Shore. That's more, uh, I'd say that's that's more Adena culture, although I'm, I'm pretty sure you're probably more acquainted with that than I am in terms of the chronology of the various different, uh, uh, you know, indigenous people that have inhabited the region. One thing I can say is that the Shawnee people are relatively newcomers. Uh, compared to the Malin culture. Uh, so like when next time you ever go to Portsmouth, uh, I do recommend you stopping off in around, you know, the, the, you know, mound, the, the whole park, they have Malin. I think they have like a, a park they put there. Unfortunately, much of that mound culture has been uh, destroyed and bulldozed by modern culture. Like there's uh, there's development up around it. Uh, I'm sure. I'm sure the uh, the ancestors of the indigenous people are are pleased with that. Uh, but yeah, there's developed all around the the mound, the Horseshoe Mound area, and uh, and around the the center of Portsmouth itself. And that's uh, Earthworks Group um, A, and it's rectangular. It's like it's enclosed with um, parallel walls, and they extend you know northeast and southeast quarter. They consist of there's also like, I think, a, another one that uh, is called the Old Fort Earthworks because it looks like a fortress. It looks like a type of moat. Um, but that's uh, that's pretty much the Portsmouth uh, mound, mound culture. Do you want to get into the significance of them? Uh, yeah, yeah, if you want to. I mean, I was going to add here a little bit, but yeah, the geometric yeah, go ahead. shapes are, you know, obviously really significant. Um, and also the walled enclosures. I mean, I've looked at a lot of these and that's kind of a reoccurring theme with a lot of the Hopa ones. I mean, they're usually built with walls around them, uh, which is interesting, but I think kind of goes into a lot of the ritualistic uh, purposes for the mounds. Uh, but what was it you wanted to get into with this Dark Inferno? Well, I wanted to like talk about some of the theories with um, with uh, the B earthworks. Um, they they think it's the woman who fell from the sky. That's a common motif, I believe, in in native lore. It's about the foundations of like the native yeah, people. Like the skydiver myth, you mean, or something? Like okay, that. that's the skydiver myth. Is that what you call it? I believe so. It's the woman who fell from the sky. She basically falls from the sky. She She's pregnant. She gives birth to two twins and the two twins uh, birth the uh, indigenous people's civilization and people. And you think that's connected to the mounds of Portsmouth? That is uh, that's not my theory exactly. Uh, But I will say that it does look like a woman. If you pay close attention to like mound B, it does look like a pregnant lady and it does look like she fell she fell from the sky and there is like some indication you know archaeologists are it's speculation of course because you know it's pre-literate we don't know for sure uh but there is speculation that this might have some type of you know 
uh, ritualistic, you know, significance and also an area where uh, maybe some of the Hopwell and some of the Adena culture migrated to this, uh, to this particular region. So it sort of functions like a Mecca or Jerusalem. Uh, so it's like a big ceremonial place and also a place of pilgrimage. That's, uh, that's some speculation by the archaeologist. Um, I think more should be looked into the Portsmouth Mound. And I'm not just uh, saying this to try to like, uh, you know, to try to invoke any kind of tourism for Portsmouth, because believe me, it's not tourist friendly. Uh, not a lot of people would probably want to go there. I'm just simply saying it is fascinating, some of the mounds and especially uh, earthworks, um, I'd say, you know, B is particularly fascinating. Okay, so how about the Mound City Complex outside of Shilakothi? I'll be honest with you, uh, Stephen. I, I, I don't know much about it. Uh, well, it was one of the, I think it actually might be the largest uh, still intact uh, uh, mound complexes of the Hopewell civilization left. And again, it's kind of uh, enclosed again in a, um, a large rectangular circle. And there are quite a few uh, mounds within this structure. I mean, I think close to a dozen at least, but the largest one being merely um, 50 feet high. Uh, and it's um, like a lot of these structures, it's right next to a river. In this case, I think it's the Skiotou River, if I remember correctly. Um, Another interesting thing about uh, the Mound City complex um, is the fact that it's actually located right next to two uh, prison facilities, <laughs> you know, which I found to be very interesting. That is interesting. Really, there's a, quite a massive one like right next to it. And then there's another one, a more recent one, like across the street from it. Um, but I was immediately struck by the similarities with that and uh, uh, the Grave Creek Mound in uh, Moundsville, West Virginia, um, which also happens to be like directly across the street uh, from a major or what had been a major prison. Um, Moundsville Prison was actually where uh, the state of West Virginia did a lot of the executions for many years. So. Uh, it was fascinating that they had, uh, you know, built it right across the street from this huge Adena mound. And it seems like that's kind of the same situation here with Mound City, where they put these two prisons. I, I don't know if they did executions at either one of them yet. I've been meeting to, like, uh, look that up. But, um, yeah, it was very fascinating when I was driving up to the... Um, the Hopewell Park or whatever it's called. And I saw the, uh, the one prison coming up on the right. I mean, it was just a huge kind of almost Gothic looking facility. So, um, yeah, I've, um, I always find it fascinating the structures that are, um, built near some of these, uh, these mountain complexes. I think it's really telling in a lot of ways, but, uh, yeah, a lot of the, you know, again, the, uh, Hopewell and Adina mounds, but especially the Hopewell ones are oriented, uh, stellarly too. Um, some towards the solstices, but a, quite a few of them um, are definitely oriented towards some stars as well. And again, this kind of plays into um, some of the mythology of uh, the Hopewell and, you know, to some extent as well, the Adena and the Bronnard, um Eastern Woodland Civilization, which really prevailed throughout the Northwest Territory. But um, <clears throat> since we'll probably get into a bit of that here in a second, you know, the cosmology basically... Um, sort of revolves around like a three-tiered world that was connected by a world tree. And, you know, you have the the Middle Earth, if you will, which is the, you know, domain that we all exist on and so on. 
and uh, then above it you have the upper world uh, which is the dominion of this you know uh, of the thunderbirds and all those kinds of myths i mean obviously this is kind of the sky kingdom and all this other good stuff and then uh, below it you have uh, the underworld uh, which is usually seen as uh uh, a kind of raging ocean uh, that's uh, under the dominion of a uh, horned serpent god of some kind or other. So you have all of that. And then also there's kind of the concept of the other world as well, which um, it's usually kind of characterized as like a twin or an evil earth, if you will, where kind of everything is backwards. Um, it's interesting because it, it somewhat kind of parallels the, uh, you know, we've been talking about Twin Peaks a lot and, I think rather appropriate because I mean I think some of the cosmology about a lot of the civilizations linked to the mounds in the early years really does parallel stuff they were going with because the other world could almost be seen as kind of the black lodge if you will I mean it's you know in theory where you would be kind of confronted with your direct self and all this other kind of stuff tells Jungian <clears throat> yes 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 well, I mean, and then also to it, um, you know, I mean, this whole area was used heavily by groups influenced by Kenneth Grant. Uh, I mean, Michael Bertrio was in Chicago and then they were doing the rituals at Devil's Lake, which had a lot of mounds in the general area. And um, the lake itself, too, is also um, really significant. I mean, it was kind of seen as a gateway into the underworld. Um, and then the Bay Cabal, obviously based out of Cincinnati, that was doing a lot of <clears throat> the rituals in that kind of general area. Uh, Grant, I mean, also has kind of a similar cosmology when you get into like the night side uh, tree of life uh, where the Lovecraftian gods are. I mean, this is usually sort of personified in some ways as like a twin or evil earth as well, which, you know, is in keeping with uh, some of the traditions of the Native American tribes, which, you know, again, kind of makes me think that they were actually very, um, you know, uh, they put a lot of thought into some of the areas where they were doing these rituals more so than people. Yeah. I was going to ask you about that, um, Stephen, is um, some of the uh, like the, you know, the way that it, the pattern, for, let's say, like the formation of the mounds are around the Ciota River is uh, do you think they were kind of going for um, a kind of, let's say, not paradise on Earth, but a replica of, you know, of the above world from which they they claim they originated they're well, kind of similar to the egyptians and it, go ahead oh it's very good that you brought up the whole thing with the rivers because that's another thing that i you know i've really noticed because the egyptian i'm really into egyptian um mythos i really love ancient egypt and i've noticed that um it reminded me a lot of the ancient egyptian uh, cosmogony and i know that that is kind of contentious because they try to say that you know mesoamerican pre-colonial Mesoamerican civilization came from the Egyptians and that, and that was often used as sort of a, let's just say uh, a negative narrative, but nevertheless, I do see some parallels between that and Egypt. And I was just curious if like, is they sort of took the, the way the rivers were structured in Egypt, it was sort of the soul followed the Nile up to, let's say Cirrus or what the Egyptians called soft debt. Go ahead. Sorry, didn't mean to interrupt. Oh, you're fine. Well, yeah, there was definitely the <clears throat> the stellar component to it, but I, I don't know if that was necessarily the whole thing with the rivers. But okay. the thing with the rivers is very important, though, because, again, I've been to a lot of these mound structures, and they're almost all by, like, rivers or lakes or creeks or something like that. There is there's always a body of water, like, nearby. 
Uh, and I definitely think there was a very specific reason for this. Now, I mean, it's, you know, again, not necessarily universal, but in the case of the Hopewell civilization, um, essentially there was a belief of a two-tiered soul, if you will. So you had kind of like your, let's just say like your eternal cosmic soul. And when you died, this- Like the Ba and the Ka? And the cot? Like the Ba and the Ka and the Kabat? Uh, I'm not familiar with that from Egyptian mythology. So okay. I can, okay, I can't really weigh in, but um, okay. So you die in your eternal soul. Um, okay, so they believe that this came from the Milky Way, and it would begin a stellar journey to return to the Milky Way. Though it would, uh, in a lot of the traditions, it would be confronted though by a uh, by the horned serpent uh, who had made his way up there. It's a kind of challenge. I suppose you could sort of see this as maybe the equivalent of the demiurgic figure that appears or something to that effect. If you want to maybe draw some parallels to Gnosticism or something like that. But regardless, so this soul was seen as eternal. It was seen as coming from space, essentially, and returning to the Milky Way upon death. Now, then there was the second soul, which was basically your kind of earthly soul. This stayed uh, in the earthly realm upon death. And I think, you know, in theory, this would be sort of like the basis for hauntings and, you know, ghosts. And I mean, you know, poltergeists and a lot of this other, you know, kind of uh, activity. I mean, I, you know, I think in a lot of Asian cultures, they would refer to these as like hungry ghosts or something. But I mean, it was kind of a, a crude representation of the ego uh, that remained after the uh, the more pure aspect of the soul had departed for the cosmos. So I kind of bring out the question of like, what do you do with this thing? Because it could become really problematic. Well, in a lot of civilizations um, across the world, water uh, factors into heavily in this narrative. And basically this is the notion that you can bind uh, consciousness or the soul or whatever you want to think to it into a body of water. Um, like you can kind of see a representation of this, for instance, like in the Ringu films uh, from Japan uh, or in Celtic mythology, there was the one um, god, I can't remember his name now, but he uh, typically when sacrifices were done to him, they were either with people who were drowned or were thrown into a body of water, sacred well or something to that effect shortly thereafter. Because again, you know, this was sort of seen as a repository of souls in a way that you could bind them to this specific area. So when you look at these mounds that the Hopewell had done, and especially like in the case of, for instance, the uh, the mound complex that's in Marietta, Ohio, I mean, they have like the one major mound complex, and then there's the sacred, the... Uh, and this is basically a pathway that during Hopewell times was totally like walled in, you know, I mean, this would have been kind of like the equivalent of a magic circle. That's basically, okay, folks, that's more or less like what these walls were around the mounds. They're essentially the equivalent of like magic circles, magic rectangles and that kind of thing. They're all oriented towards different planets and things like that to draw power from them. And because of the kind of things that were done there with souls departing, you know, the cosmos and then earthly souls going around and what have you, it was to bind everything in these specific regions. And then you've got the sacred via. It's a pathway that runs directly down to the river and it was totally walled in. It ran directly from the mound complex to the river. 
So again, it doesn't take a genius to sort of see like what they were almost surely getting at with this. You know, it's a pathway so that the soul, the earthly soul, will go down to that body of water and be constrained and confined to it. And there is no way that it can get out of that because it's being confined within this, you know, blessed pathway that's not there to bind it. So the stuff was really elaborate, you know, and I mean, it's just, it's utterly fascinating. I mean, if you've studied the tradition of theurgy, I mean, coming out of, you know, originally ancient Egypt and kind of transferring up through Greece and, um, you know, Babylon and so forth. I mean, then later kind of uh, going into Gnosticism and, you know, Platonism and then eventually ending up in uh, the West again in the Renaissance. But again, I don't, you know, want to belabor the point, but I mean, the, the Hopewell civilization, you know, frankly, it was really more, when you're talking about the Hopewell civilization, it was more of a religion you're talking about than a full-blown civilization. Mm-hmm. I mean, it did have a lot of these components. I mean, it does seem like it was very much centered around theurgy, I mean, most of these mounds, I mean, actually really pretty much all of them were oriented towards the solstices, various stellar phenomenon and so forth. Um, you know, we've found things there like, uh, I think it's like Misa uh, glass works, essentially, that could easily be used for scrying. I mean, they're very much in the form of mirrors. And in some cases, um, they've even sound, found obsidian mirrors there that were uh, brought up in trade. Uh, they had ceremonial effigy pipes uh, that were probably, you know, I mean, they smoked a special kind of tobacco, a very uh, potent form of it that could induce hallucinations. And there's also a lot of evidence that they used uh, magic mushrooms at times. So it seems like in the case of some of these mound complexes, they were used for the practice of theurgy or, pos- um, you know, where the soul would essentially go through a test run of ascending through the cosmos while the uh, practitioner was still alive. And in some cases, too, they might have been doing what we would think of as drawing down the moon, i.e., you know, bringing down some of these planetary forces. I mean, I'm sure they would probably see it as the, the horned serpent or the thunderbirds or something. I mean, again, it's fascinating in the complex, in the context of things like Serpent Mound. I mean, how it's giant serpent um you know that i mean could only be seen from the sky again if this is a a ritual complex to draw down this kind of entity i mean this could be a re- explanation for why they would build it like that you don't necessarily need extraterrestrials to explain it for that purpose so anyway some of these complexes were probably used for that region for that reason some of them were probably used is, you know, funeral housing, essentially, where the uh, bodies would be cremated and they would go through the rituals to help. I, I was going to ask you about that, Recluse. Uh, what about the cremation? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They had the cremation there and some of them. I think it was actually the Mount City one where there were quite a few of these crematories. What was the significance of that, though? I, I think some of those were just generally when people died, you know, I mean, they, you know, I mean, it was, I think, assumed that everybody would have to go through this sort of cosmic journey. So I mean, was it hierarchical, though? Was there was there like uh, shamans and certain certain well, again, uh, let's say chiefs that... i think some of the i mean i don't know if everybody who was cremated there would have necessarily been buried there i mean that's one of the things we don't know so it's kind of hard to determine you know did they just use it for like yeah, the- that was kind of like what i uh sort of when i was researching it i was looking into it i was wondering are all these mounds necessarily have you know cremated bodies in them or are they just kind of ceremonial centers yeah, I don't, th- well, again, like I said, I don't think all of them were used for that. I mean, I do think some of them were cremation centers, you know, for the broader populace. 
some of them were used for more of these ritualistic purposes like i'm saying for like soul flight or drawing down the moon some of them i think were used maybe for you know actual sacrificial rites where i mean you maybe did you know do some human sacrifices i mean not on a, a massive scale as some people have claimed but i mean there have been i think a few mounds where like um you know they found like the pope was most likely like a shaman with like multiple uh decapitated heads like surrounding the corpse and things like that that's interesting um so there's some indication that there might have been some of that at a few of the mound complexes but I, I don't think that every single mound complex had the same purpose and it would be a mistake to think that they all did i definitely think that um you know some of them were used i mean for maybe more conventional magic some of them were more like you know crematory slash you know, funeral housing, essentially, some of them might have some darker purposes, but I mean, there were, you know, a lot of variety of reasons for uh, crafting them, let's just say. All right, so interestingly, uh, the Sugarloaf Mountain is off of Route 23 by way of a road called Marietta. Uh, Sugarloaf Mountain was the holy mountain of the Hopewell, uh, their axis Monday, most of the Hopewell Mounds, the Ohio Valley are oriented towards this point. This is another kind of fascinating thing. The great <clears throat> archaeotheologist uh, William Roman postulates the purpose of many of these mounds as it was a way for, it was a kind of indigenous form of theurgy, as I was just kind of talking about, in which one's consciousness ascended to the stars and been returned to the Milky Way, from which the Hopewell believed the souls originated from. So Sugarloaf Mountain was viewed as kind of a crossroads of the soul. It's currently located in a park called Great Seal State Park to boot. There's one of the incredible instances of synchronicity in Twilight languages playing out against the black drop of all these you know, two bloody events and um, sort of add like a little more to this. So yeah, basically, you know, you have it's tremendous amount of mounds in the Ohio Valley. I mean, there were, you know, at the peak, I mean, of uh, Hopewell civilization, there were thousands, maybe even tens of thousands. And they're all oriented towards this Sugarloaf Mountain, okay, which is just fascinating. I mean, this is like literally where it was kind of seen that these souls would pass through on their way, you know, to the ascension into the solar system or uh, into the uh, stars so they could return to the Milky Way. Like I said, it was just a proverbial crossroads. So again, it's it's right off of good old Route 23 on a road called Marietta, which was the first uh, town that the Society of Cincinnati founded in Ohio. Um, it was really kind of significant in their whole sort of uh, secret society's legacy. Uh, it's just really an interesting case of synchronicity and so on and so forth. And it does kind of make you wonder in some ways, I mean, how intentional some of this was, especially when they named the bloody thing Great Seal State Park. Uh, so yeah, uh, just in the context of all of this as well, as we sort of see with like the broader Scots-Irish culture and how much, you know, so much of that is manifested in almost a modern fashion in this whole region, it's incredible in a lot of ways. Um, I mean, how do you take this, uh, uh, Dr. Inferno? Well, I mean, to be quite honest with you, um, Stephen, a lot of this has been educational for me. I did not to know that there was this type of intricate lore. Uh, I was definitely interested in the Hope, uh, Hopwell and Adena culture, and also about the various different, you know, uh, mythos associated with the indigenous people of America. But I didn't know there was like this elaborate sort of highway, you could say, of the souls that exist and 
uh, this uh, the theor theoretical type of um, underpinnings and within you know this uh, the system you were you were saying. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's kind of important to emphasize. I mean, to the <clears throat> hopeful civilization. I mean, the, you know, this kind of whole Southern Ohio uh, region that we've been talking about. I mean, was basically designed with these mounds and these other kind of um, sacred earthworks to create you know, this elaborate, um, you know, essentially interstellar, I mean, uh, grid system that was to tie, that was basically tying the earth to the stars. So, I mean, this is, it was extremely elaborate, guys. I mean, I know this might sound a little crazy, but if you've actually been out to some of these mound complexes and seen how- I need to do that. You know, just elaborate they are. And I mean, the design and everything that went into them, I mean, it makes a lot more sense, but this really is just- a grid system that is meant to tie the earth to the cosmos all throughout the Ohio Valley region. I want to say that I'm also glad that you're touching upon something positive attached to the, uh, to the, you know, indigenous mounds as opposed to something negative. Whenever you watch like, uh, you know, movies associated with any kind of India burial mound, it's like they consider it to be, you know, this like nefarious uh, type of uh, thing that uh, just, is the plot of like some cheesy uh, horror movie. So I'm glad that you're discussing this in a more positive context. Well, that's the white man's contribution to Inferno. Like, <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's just, you know, again, this is like one of the reasons why I find the Society of Cincinnati to be such like a fascinating group because they were so obsessed with this Northwestern territory that included much of modern day Ohio and a lot of the states around the Great Wakes area, Wisconsin, Michigan, Indiana, so forth. And this is just, you know, where most of these, you know, Native American mounds from the Eastern Woodland civilizations and the Hopewell and the Adena, you know, originated from. It was all in this territory that they wanted to settle. And again, I mean, these are the, a lot of cases, um, you know, they were some of these old guard families from places like Boston, New York City, uh, you know, where again, I mean, we know that they had these kind of longstanding interests in like alchemy and so forth. So, I mean, it's just... It's fascinating that there was such an obsession with like found your um you know colonizing this whole area. Some of the stuff that was built up like right against the backdrop of this um you know this rather remarkable grid system that this earlier civilization had been built up. And I mean, you have to kind of like wonder, you know, how much of this were they aware of? How much of it was deliberate? And what was the purpose of it? If they were, you know, essentially trying to harness, I mean, a lot of these earthworks to their own ends. But again, this is uh, some of the most prominent men in early American history we're talking about. I mean, people like George Washington, Alexander Hamilton. I mean, they were all deeply engaged in a lot of these kind of things. In the case of a guy like Washington, I mean, he had a very keen interest in these earthworks. I mean, he was a surveyor. I mean, he did a lot of uh, work, you know, looking at these mounds in between the French Indian War and the American Revolution. He had a very keen interest in this kind of stuff. Uh, when you sort of look at a lot of the <clears throat> the ongoing secrecy about what was found in these mounds, it's kind of another odd thing. I mean, if you've really looked into this, I mean, only a handful of people since the you know early 19th century have really even been able to <laughs> get into the freaking mounds to see what was in them. Um, uh, and then a lot of that, I mean, this has been kind of buried away in the Smithsonian, which has led to a lot of, you know, again, wild, incredible speculation. I mean, there's just a very odd history about a lot and of and steven isn't it a cruel irony you mentioned it's like the creation of the white man that you know even the europeans themselves 
they have lost a lot of their touch with their spiritual past at the same time. Um, you know, they've sort of turned everything into a museum and um, they, they don't even study these things properly. In addition to that, it seems, it seems quite a waste to just develop shopping malls and just uh, modernity just over these mounds. Um, I, I, I wonder what, you know, what people, what they would think about like the current development of like all this just overly developed, let's say suburban sprawl all over these, uh, these mounds and this uh, postmodern America. Yeah. And I mean, it does kind of make you wonder, you know, I mean, if some of the stuff like we've been describing with the US Route 23 is just kind of a manifestation of this. I mean, again, it's just so fascinating that, I mean, you have just this central hub. Of- Are we stuck in their dark world? Are we stuck <laughs> in their backwards world? I mean, yeah, it just seems like it at times. I mean, just this hub of human and drug trafficking. I mean, running through this just whole area that at one point in time was one of the most sacred spots in the entire country. This is a cruel joke. Someone right now is is throwing a, well, maybe not right now. They're throwing a McDonald's wrapper right over these regions. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. really, really. I mean, yeah, it's just, you know, again, it's fascinating. And then, I mean, also, too, you know, I mean, it's kind of the fact that you see the Scots-Irish, I mean, coming up with this again, you know, I mean, there's kind of the whole tradition with the fairy forts and what have you. Uh, and I mean, just that whole mythos. Oh, we, could do an- we could do another episode on Appalachian folk magic sometime if you, if you would be up for it. <laughs> oh, totally, totally. But I mean, yeah, it's just... I, again, like, this is why this is just so fascinating. I mean, just looking beyond, I mean, the sex and the, you know, human trafficking and, I mean, all this other stuff, which, I mean, is important, but just the broader context of, like, what you're uh, kind of seeing with all of this. I mean, this is just uh, another one of those instances where you're confronted with the fact that reality is a lot stranger than we tend to uh, make it out as being. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I think that's a good place to uh, wrap up, Owen. As always, folks, I want to thank you guys so much for listening. And as always, good night and good luck to you all. Come on, baby, pick me up. Out here in my wiki up. Sick and tired of fucking up. Sick and tired of pushing luck. Voodoo blue got juice in it. Swallow what I'm about to spit. Don't got 86 from the copper queen for singing this. I took it to the goat chain. My people there, they're feeling me Down low, skin, roll more characters than Stephen King Said I'm just working at the quarry, y'all I ain't in a hurry, y'all Come on, baby, pick me up Out here in my wiki up Stuck down in the stick Hut is hot as hell, I tell you what Put it up and knock it down Moving on that big around Come on, mama, jump down Turn around, do it for me, stick Cause they done let the wolves out They're coming with that heat Mama shooting up the street Mama fight or fight adrenaline You feel that little tingle in your feet Mama no retreat Mobilize your whole fleet Hit the street Tell me that you good for it You want peace go to war for it Say one two three Geronimo Jump baby we gotta go Geronimo, hands tied, 
set and wet diffused in it Shoot it over the castle wall The Migra can't patrol it off From Berlin to the Great Wall The greatest walls are bound to fall So legalize it, Vato About a Genghis Chapo Come on, legalize it No need to advertise it The weed cures the cancer Everybody even caught or realized If a farmer don't make cash money When we rock that stash, honey Best believe they sooner take it Out your ass, Sunday. Come on, the man ain't getting wealthy With people getting healthy, right? Talking about high AZ Talking about that BMC We got no economy if we ain't got no enemy The Popo and the BP DHS and Army Honeywell and L3 Razor wires, UAVs Officer, excuse me please Said I'm just eating my burrito Not the droids you're looking for See you all on payday See you at the Safeway Bisbee lives on crazy checks BP on that fast pay I sing my hoodie blues, y'all I don't make the rules, y'all Just paying my dues, y'all But I'm just saying Sorry, hippies If Great White Father don't make payroll Forget about your maple It's just the one thing That ain't too clear I said people always Our whole civilization, what?